Part six of Paul and Virginia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alice Christoph. Paul and Virginia by Bernadette de Saint Pierre. Part six. The first object beheld by Paul in his way home was the Negro woman Mary, who, mounted on a rock, was earnestly looking towards the sea. As soon as he perceived her, he called to her from a distance. Where is Virginia? Mary turned her head towards her young master, and began to weep. Paul, distracted, retracing his steps, ran to the harbour. He was there informed that Virginia had embarked at the break of day, and that the vessel had immediately set sail, and was now out of sight. He instantly returned to the plantation, which he crossed without uttering a word. Quite perpendicular as appears the wall of rocks behind us, those green platforms which separate their summits are so many stages, by means of which you may reach, through some difficult paths, that cone of sloping and inaccessible rocks, which is called the Thumb. At the foot of that cone is an extended slope of ground, covered with lofty trees, and so steep and elevated that it looks like a forest in the air, surrounded by tremendous precipices. The clouds, which are constantly attracted round the summit of the thumb, supply innumerable rivulets, which fall to so great a depth in the valley situated on the other side of the mountain, that from this elevated point the sound of their cataracts cannot be heard. From that spot you can discern a considerable part of the island, diversified by precipices and mountain peaks, and amongst others, Peter Booth and the Three Breasts, with their valleys full of woods. You also command an extensive view of the ocean, and can even perceive the Isle of Bourbon, forty leagues to the westward. From the summit of that stupendous pile of rocks Paul caught sight of the vessel which was bearing away Virginia, and which now, ten leagues out at sea, appeared like a black spot in the midst of the ocean. He remained a great part of the day with his eyes fixed upon this object. When it had disappeared, he still fancied he beheld it. And when at length the traces which clung to his imagination were lost in the mists of the horizon, he seated himself on that wild point, forever beaten by the winds, which never ceased to agitate the tops of the cabbage and gum-trees, and the hoarse and moaning murmurs of which, similar to the distant sound of organs, inspire a profound melancholy. On this spot I found him, his head reclined on the rock, and his eyes fixed upon the ground. I had followed him from the earliest dawn, and after much importunity, I prevailed on him to descend from the heights, and return to his family. I went home with him, where the first impulse of his mind, on seeing Madame de la Tour, was to reproach her bitterly for having deceived him. She told us that a favourable wind having sprung up at three o'clock in the morning, and the vessel being ready to sail, the governor, attended by some of his staff and the missionary, had come with a palanquin to fetch her daughter, and that notwithstanding Virginia's objections, her own tears and entreaties, and the lamentations of Margaret, everybody exclaiming all the time that it was for the general welfare, they had carried her away almost to dying. At least, cried Paul, 
If I had bid her farewell, I should now be more calm. I would have said to her, Virginia, if during the time we have lived together, one word may have escaped me which has offended you, before you leave me for ever, tell me that you forgive me. I would have said to her, Since I am destined to see you no more, farewell, my dear Virginia, farewell. Live far from me, contented and happy. When he saw that his mother and Madame de la Tour were weeping, You must now, said he, seek some other hand to wipe away your tears. And then, rushing out of the house and groaning aloud, he wandered up and down the plantation. He hovered in particular about those spots which had been most endeared to Virginia. He said to the goats and their little ones which followed him bleating, What do you want of me? You will see with me no more her who used to feed you with her own hand. He went to the bower called Virginia's resting place, and as the birds flew around him, exclaimed, Poor birds, you will fly no more to meet her who cherished you. And observing Fidel running backwards and forwards in search of her, he heaved a deep sigh and cried, Ah, you will never find her again. At length he went and seated himself upon a rock where he had conversed with her the preceding evening, and at the sight of the ocean upon which he had seen the vessel disappear, which had borne her away, his heart overflowed with anguish, and he wept bitterly. We continually watched his movements, apprehensive of some fatal consequence from the violent agitation of his mind. His mother and Madame de la Tour conjured him, in the most tender manner, not to increase their affliction by his despair. At length, the latter soothed his mind by lavishing upon him epithets calculated to awaken his hopes, calling him her son, her dear son, her son-in-law, whom she destined for her daughter. She persuaded him to return home, and to take some food. He seated himself next to the place which used to be occupied by the companion of his childhood, and as if she had still been present, he spoke to her, and made as though he would offer her whatever he knew as most agreeable to her taste. Then, starting from this dream of fancy, he began to weep. For some days he employed himself in gathering together everything which had belonged to Virginia, the last nosegays she had worn, the cocoa shell from which she used to drink, and after kissing a thousand times these relics of his beloved, to him the most precious treasures which the world contained, he hid them in his bosom. Amber does not shed so sweet a perfume as the veriest trifles touched by those we love. At length, perceiving that the indulgence of his grief increased that of his mother and Madame de la Tour, and that the wants of the family demanded continual labour, he began, with the assistance of Domingo, to repair the damage done to the garden. But soon after, this young man, hitherto indifferent as a creole to everything that was passing in the world, begged of me to teach him to read and write, in order that he might correspond with Virginia. He afterwards wished to obtain a knowledge of geography, that he might form some idea of the country where she would disembark, and of history, that he might know something of the manners of the society in which she would be placed. The powerful sentiment of love, which directed his present studies, had already instructed him in agriculture, 
and in the art of laying out grounds with advantage and beauty. It must be admitted that to the fond dreams of this restless and ardent passion mankind are indebted for most of the arts and sciences, while its disappointments have given birth to philosophy, which teaches us to bear up under misfortune. Love thus, the general link of all beings, becomes the great spring of society by inciting us to knowledge as well as to pleasure. Paul found little satisfaction in the study of geography, which, instead of describing the natural history of each country, gave only a view of its political divisions and boundaries. History, and especially modern history, interested him little more. He there saw only general and periodical evils, the causes of which he could not discover. Wars, without either motive or reason, uninteresting intrigues, with nations destitute of principle and princes void of humanity. To this branch of reading he preferred romances, which, being chiefly occupied by the feelings and concerns of men, sometimes represented situations similar to his own. Thus, no book gave him so much pleasure as Telemachus, from the pictures it draws of pastoral life, and of the passions which are most natural to the human breast. He read aloud to his mother and Madame de la Tour those parts which affected him most sensibly. But sometimes, touched by the most tender remembrances, his emotion would choke his utterance and his eyes be filled with tears. He fancied he had found in Virginia the dignity and wisdom of Antiope, united to the misfortunes and the tenderness of Eucharist. With very different sensations he perused our fashionable novels, filled with licentious morals and maxims, and when he was informed that these works drew a tolerably faithful picture of European society, he trembled, and not without some appearance of reason, lest Virginia should become corrupted by it, and forget him. More than a year and a half, indeed, passed away before Madame de la Tour received any tidings of her aunt or her daughter. During that period, she only accidentally heard that Virginia had safely arrived in France. At length, however, a vessel which stopped here on its way to the Indies brought a packet to Madame de la Tour and a letter written by Virginia's own hand. Although this amiable and considerate girl had written in a guarded manner that she might not wound her mother's feelings, it appeared evident enough that she was unhappy. The letter painted so naturally her situation and her character that I have retained it almost word for word. My dear and beloved mother, I have already sent you several letters, written by my own hand, but having received no answer, I am afraid they have not reached you. I have better hopes for this, from the means I have now gained of sending you tidings of myself and of hearing from you. I have shed many tears since our separation, I, who never used to weep, but for the misfortunes of others. My aunt was so much astonished, when, having upon my arrival inquired what accomplishments I possessed, I told her that I could neither read nor write. She asked me what then I had learned since I came into the world, and when I answered that I had been taught to take care of the household affairs and to obey your will, she told me that I have received the education of a servant. The next day she placed me as a boarder in a great abbey near Paris, 
where I have masters of all kinds, who teach me, among other things, history, geography, grammar, mathematics, and riding on horseback. But I have so little capacity for all these sciences, that I fear I shall make but small progress with my masters. I feel that I am a very poor creature, with a very little ability to learn what they teach. My aunt's kindness, however, does not decrease. She gives me new dresses every season, and she had placed two waiting women with me, who are dressed like fine ladies. She has made me take the title of Countess, but has obliged me to renounce the name of Latour, which is as dear to me as it is to you, from all you have told me of the sufferings my father endured in order to marry you. She has given me in place of your name that of your family, which is also dear to me, because it was your name when a girl. Seeing myself in so splendid a situation, I implored her to let me send you something to assist you. But how shall I repeat her answer? Yet you have desired me always to tell you the truth. She told me then, that a little would be of no use to you, and that a great deal would only encumber you in the simple life you led. As you know, I could not write. I endeavoured upon my arrival to send you tidings of myself by another hand, but finding no person here in whom I could place confidence, I applied night and day to learn to read and write, and heaven, who saw my motive for learning, no doubt assisted my endeavours, for I succeeded in both in a short time. I entrusted my first letters to some of the ladies here who, I have reason to think, carried them to my aunt. This time I have recourse to a boarder, who is my friend. I send you her direction, by means of which I shall receive your answer. My aunt has forbid me holding any correspondence whatever with any one, lest, she says, it should occasion an obstacle to the great views she had for my advantage. No person is allowed to see me at the great but herself, and an old nobleman, one of her friends, who, she says, is much pleased with me. I am sure I am not at all so with him, nor should I, even if it were possible for me to be pleased with any one at present. I live in all the splendour of affluence, and have not a sou at my disposal. They say I might make an improper use of money. Even my clothes belong to my femme de chambre, who quarrel about them before I have left them off. In the midst of riches I am poorer than when I lived with you, for I have nothing to give away. When I found that the great accomplishments they taught me would not procure me the power of doing the smallest good, I had recourse to my needle, of which happily you had taught me the use. I sent several pairs of stockings, of my own making for you, and my mamma, Margaret, a cap for Domingo, and one of my red handkerchiefs for Mary. I also sent with this packet some kernels, and seeds of various kinds of fruits which I gathered in the Abbey Park during my hours of recreation. I have also sent a few seeds of violets, daisies, buttercups, poppies and scabious, which I picked up in the fields. There are much more beautiful flowers in the meadows of this country than in ours, but nobody cares for them. I am sure that you and my mamma, Margaret, will be better pleased with this bag of seeds than you were with a bag of piastres, which was the cause of our separation and of my tears. It will give me great delight if you should one day see apple trees growing by the side of our plantains, and elms blending their foliage, 
with that of our cocoa trees. You will fancy yourself in Normandy, which you love so much. You desired me to relate to you my joys and my griefs. I have no joys far from you. As far as my griefs, I endeavour to soothe them by reflecting that I am in the situation in which it was the will of God that you should place me. But my greatest affliction is that no one here speaks to me of you, and that I cannot speak of you to any one. My femme de chambre, or rather those of my aunt, for they belong more to her than to me, told me the other day, when I wished to turn the conversation upon the objects most dear to me, Remember, mademoiselle, that you are a Frenchwoman, and must forget that land of savages. Ah, sooner will I forget myself, than forget the spot on which I was born, and where you dwell. It is this country which is to me a land of savages, for I live alone, having no one to whom I can impart those feelings, of tenderness for you, which I shall bear with me to the grave. I am, my dearest and beloved mother, your affectionate and dutiful daughter, Virginie de la Tour. I recommend to your goodness Mary and Domingo, who took so much care of my infancy. Caress Fidel for me, who found me in the wood. Paul was astonished that Virginia had not said one word of him, she, who had not forgotten even the house-dog. But he was not aware that, however long a woman's letter may be, she never fails to leave her dearest sentiments for the end. In a postscript, Virginia particularly recommended to Paul's attention two kinds of seed, those of the violet and the scabious. She gave him some instructions upon the natural characters of these flowers, and the spots most proper for their cultivation. The violet, she said, produces a little flower of a dark purple colour, which delights to conceal itself beneath the bushes. But it is soon discovered by its wide-spreading perfume. She desired that these seeds must be sown by the border of the fountain, at the foot of her cocoa tree. The scabious, she added, produces a beautiful flower of a pale blue, and a background spotted with white. You might fancy it was in mourning, but for this reason it is also called the widow's flower. It grows best in bleak spots, beaten by the winds. She begged him to sow this upon the rock, where she had spoken to him at night for the last time, and that, in remembrance of her, he would henceforth give it the name of the Rock of Adieu. She had put these seeds into a little purse, the tissue of which was exceedingly simple, but which appeared above all price to Paul when he saw on it a P and a V entwined together, and knew that the beautiful hair which formed the cipher was the hair of Virginia. The whole family listened with tears to the reading of the letter of this amiable and virtuous girl. Her mother answered it in the name of the little society, desiring her to remain or to return as she thought proper, and assuring her that happiness had left their dwelling since her departure, and that for herself she was inconsolable. Paul also sent her a very long letter, in which he assured her that he would arrange the garden in a manner agreeable to her taste, and mingle together in it the plants of Europe with those of Africa, as she had blended their initials together in her work. He sent her some fruit from the cocoa trees of the fountain, now arrived at maturity telling her that he would not add any of the other productions of the island, 
that the desire of seeing them again might hasten her return. He conjured her to comply as soon as possible with the ardent wishes of her family, and above all, with his own, since he could never hereafter taste happiness away from her. Paul sowed with a careful hand the European seeds, particularly the violet and the scabious, the flower of which seemed to bear some analogy to the character and present situation of Virginia, by whom they had been so especially recommended. But either they were dried up in the voyage, or the climate of this part of the world is unfavourable to their growth, for a very small number of them even came up, and not one arrived at full perfection. In the meantime, envy, which ever comes to embitter human happiness, particularly in the French colonies, spread some reports in the island which gave Paul much uneasiness. The passengers in the vessel which brought Virginia's letter asserted that she was upon the point of being married, and named the nobleman of the court to whom she was engaged. Some even went so far as to declare that the union had already taken place, and that they themselves had witnessed the ceremony. Paul at first despised the report, brought by a merchant vessel, as he knew that they often spread erroneous intelligence in their passage. But some of the inhabitants of the island, with malignant pity, affecting to bewail the event, he was soon led to attach some degree of belief to this cruel intelligence. Besides, in some of the novels he had lately read, he had seen that perfidy was treated as a subject of pleasantry, and knowing that these books contained pretty faithful representations of European manners, he feared that the heart of Virginia was corrupted, and had forgotten its former thus his new acquirements had already only served to render him more miserable, and his apprehensions were much increased by the circumstance, that though several ships touched here from Europe, Within the six months immediately following the arrival of her letter, not one of them brought any tidings of Virginia. This unfortunate young man, with a heart torn by the most cruel agitation, often came to visit me, in the hope of confirming or banishing his uneasiness, by my experience of the world. I live, as I have already told you, a league and a half from this point, upon the banks of a little river which glides along the sloping mountain. There I lead a solitary life, without wife, children, or slaves. After having enjoyed, and lost the rare felicity of living with a congenial mind, the state of life which appears the least wretched is doubtless that of solitude. Every man who has much cause of complaint against his fellow-creatures seeks to be alone. It is also remarkable that all those nations which have been brought to wretchedness by their opinions, their manners, or their forms of government, have produced numerous classes of citizens, altogether devoted to solitude and celibacy. Such were the Egyptians in their decline, and the Greeks of the lower empire. And such in our days are the Indians, the Chinese, the modern Greeks, the Italians, and the greater part of the Eastern and southern nations of Europe. Solitude, by removing men from the miseries which follow in the train of social intercourse, brings them in some degree back to the unsophisticated enjoyment of nature. In the midst of modern society, broken up by innumerable prejudices, the mind is in a constant turmoil of agitation. It is incessantly revolving in itself a thousand tumultuous and contradictory opinions, 
by which the members of an ambitious and miserable circle seek to raise themselves above each other. But in solitude the soul lays aside the morbid illusions which troubled her, and resumes the pure consciousness of herself, of nature, and of its author, as the muddy water of a torrent which has ravaged the plains, coming to rest, and diffusing itself over some low grounds out of its cause, deposits there the slime it has taken up, and resuming its wonted transparency, reflects with its own shores the verdure of the earth and the light of heaven. Thus does solitude recruit the powers of the body as well as those of the mind. It is among hermits that are found the men who carry human existence to its extreme limits. Such are the Brahmins of India. In brief, I consider solitude so necessary to happiness, even in the world itself, that it appears to me impossible to derive lasting pleasure from any pursuit whatever, or to regulate our conduct by any stable principle, if we do not create for ourselves a mental void, whence our own views rarely emerge, and into which the opinions of others never enter. I do not mean to say that man ought to live absolutely alone. He is connected by his necessities with all mankind, his labours are due to man, and he owes something too to the rest of nature. But as God has given to each of us organs perfectly adapted to the elements of the globe on which we live, feet for the soil, lungs for the air, eyes for the light, without the power of changing the use of any of these faculties, he has reserved for himself, as the author of life, that which is its chief organ, the heart. End of part six.